Hello and welcome to A Study in Granada, a podcast where we watch the 1980s Granada television Sherlock Holmes series starring Jeremy Brett, and we also then read the story along with it and talk about it. My name is Mike Knoll. Uh, I've been a fan of Sherlock Holmes for a while and of the Granada series, so I got this project together to mostly get my friend Jackson Eflin to also watch them with me. Hello, Jackson. Hi. So I know very little of proper Sherlock Holmes. I've seen some of the BBC recent one. I've seen the Robert Downey Jr. ones, but I haven't read any of the proper books and I haven't seen any more faithful adaptions, which is weird because I love mystery stories. So this is a kind of chance for me to finally get around to biting that bucket list. Did you say biting that bucket list? Crossing that bullet. Some metaphor. So we're starting with Scandal in Bohemia because it is the first episode of the Granada series. Obviously, A Study in Scarlet and The Hound of the Baskerville comes before these canonically, but The Study in Scarlet is not an episode, and The Hound of the Baskervilles is farther into the series run. So we're going to do these in order of episodes, not necessarily order of the stories. Mm-hmm. So we open on a scandal. In, I'm sorry, Jackson, did you want to say something? I was looking through the episode list uh, so I could have it up, and apparently there's one called The Last Vampire, and I'm very excited yes. about that. That's kind of farther in, though. Oh, sure. Well, now we have to make more episodes if you want to get to that one. Yeah, there's no way to watch it without watching through all the other ones first. Yeah, so this is A Scandal in Bohemia, broadcast April 24th in 1984. We are going to spoil ending, so if you want to watch it first, I'd advise that. Or if you prefer, read, you can read the story. Um, they're pretty easy to find. So Scandal Bohemia, we open with Dr. John Watson returning after a week in the country, and he finds his friend and companion, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, in a sort of a stupor. He suspects that it's his drug use. In the stories, Holmes does use heroin for when like there's no work, like when he's and he says in this, uh, you know, I need I need work. It's it's when he gets bored, basically, to keep his mind stimulated, he'll take drugs. My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram, the most intricate analysis, and I'm in my proper atmosphere. Then I can dispense with artificial stimulants. But I abhor the dull routine of existence. Uh, So Watson assumes that he's taken drugs, and it turns out that... I think this was a test? (laughs) You have made the wrong diagnosis, Doctor. I have my stimulant here. What is this? It came by the morning post. And you can shut that drawer. Like, he left it open on purpose to trick Watson or to, like, test him. Yeah, which is weird. I'm not sure what to make of that. Because we don't know that much about this Sherlock and this Watson's relationship and how drugs are a part of that. It's kind of hard to judge where that's coming from. I can also see it being, like, a a prank. Like, you know, oh, you think that I'm high on drugs, but actually, no, it's it's fine. I'm, I'm doing okay. Which is a weird prank, but also one I could see some Sherlocks pulling. They have a case Holmes has received a letter of a man who's going to come and speak with him on a very urgent matter. He gives the letter to Watson and asks him to see what he can deduce. We learn basically through a series of deductions that we can get into that a German official is coming to see Holmes and through some of the, through like the maker's mark that when they hold up to the light, it's somebody from the Royal House of Bohemia. It's not proper English paper. It is not English paper at all. 
It's not it. Uh, it's a thicker German paper. There is a line in there that I want to touch on real quick because what was the sentence, Jackson? Oh, let me pull that up. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Which Holmes says, only a German is so uncourteous to his verbs, which I just like that. Yeah. That was a very funny line. The man in question arrives and identifies himself from behind a very good disguise as Count von Krum. Okay, so you say very good disguise. This Yes, facetiously. <laughs> yeah. So he has a... Like robber mask, like just like the eye. It only covers the eyes. Like the Dread Pirate Robert's disguise mm-hmm. from Princess Pride. And his eyes, his like middle third of his face, are not his distinguishing features. The part about this man that you immediately notice are his giant mutton chops that go all the way down to his chin, veer sharply upwards and become a mustache with no beard. It is, you have to have a, like a kingdom to pull off that look. And in fact, he does, because this is in fact the king of Bohemia. Yes, Holmes pretty quickly disabuses him of this disguise by calling him your majesty. And then he ad- admits to it. Uh, he is in a little bit of a pickle. A woman that he was... Uh, intimately involved with by the name of Irene Adler, even though Watson keeps calling her Irena. What's up with which, that? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's the way it was meant to be pronounced. I don't know, but it just was. A, it was a little bit of weird spin that Watson put on that. Mm-hmm. Had an intimate relationship with this woman, Irene Adler, and had pictures taken with her, and that's enough to blackmail him somehow uh, if he ever tries to get married. And he is engaged to be married to a particularly fastidious Swedish royal. And according to him, she's threatening to send these pictures and accounts of their uh, their affair when they were both single people. <laughs> I like people. the way you said affair. Yeah, like, it's that very, like, Victorian scandal of In Bohemia. two unmarried people got around a bit. Holmes seems pretty bored by this. Like, we'll just, you know, buy it, steal it, etc., etc., until the king mentions that they've tried to steal it from her house five different times. They've weighed later twice and, like, had her baggage searched, and no one can find it. It has to be solved by Friday. The marriage will be announced on Monday. He's leaving the continent Friday. To which, after he's left, Holmes also says that it has to be done by Friday because Tchaikovsky is going to be directing oh, his own works, and so, like, they can't miss that. Which I thought was so funny. It was just... I think it shows Holmes... Is so sure of himself in this one that, like, well, yeah, it's going to be Friday. And as far as I can tell, that's not in the original story, unless I missed it. No, I don't think it was. Yeah, it's a really good way to, like, ground us in a time period for this without, like, giving an explicit year. He leaves them with a thousand pound, uh, some in gold, some in, like, banknotes, to which Watson's reply is to take one in each hand and celebrate that they're going to get to eat out tonight. Holmes, we can die in a Romanos. <laughs> Oh, Watson. So we'll get into this later probably a bit more, but I we give this sense from this of Watson being kind of like bumbly and, oh, I, I want to eat food. I'm hungry for most of the scene than <laughs> yeah. like most Watsons would tend to have a bit more gravitas because they're supposed to be like, oh, I'm serious, which I think it works really well to have Sherlock and Watson have this kind of wacky farcical, I want to have food and not till the job's done, Watson, but I'm hungry. Well, go have a sandwich. Watson is kind of passive in this one in general. Like typically he doesn't get in on the action a lot, but he's like there on the scene a lot and doing things and this one it's kind of much more of like wait until Sherlock shows up to tell me everything and then I'll do like one thing and then the episode's over which isn't the norm so I think that the same the arc of him trying to get food in the opening was some attempt at giving him something to do (laughs) and I'm guessing it's like the norms of the time or whatever but I kept thinking Watson make your own damn food you can 
Surely you know how to fry an egg or some bacon or something. I mean, he's a he's a well-to-do gentleman. He's probably never had to make his own food ever. <sighs> Eat him. So here we kind of get, and, and we can maybe get into this more as we go through the episode, but here is where we first get our Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson together. Mm. What do you think of Jeremy Brett and David Burke? It's kind of hard to judge David Burke in this one because he's very passive, doesn't have a lot like necessarily to say or do, but I really love Jeremy Brett in this. He's oddly warm and genial. Like, he seems playful with this whole situation. Like, he's a bit bored that this particular game isn't very fun, but he's in general into the idea of solving mysteries and having fun, and he wants Watson here to join him in this because he's like, oh, good, another player. Yeah, and I don't know, like, I, I, I feel like the way you can judge a... Sherlock Holmes adaptation and maybe how well the adapt the adapter that just didn't seem right the adapter um, there you go understands the source material I feel like is how their Holmes and Watson play yeah off each other because a lot of times more recently we've gotten more of like a why are they friends mm-hmm. and here they're less like equals it's more like a mentor pupil relationship or where Holmes wants to teach Watson what's going on show him how it all works and they're not meant to be on the same level but right but Holmes doesn't judge Watson for not being as smart as he is and so right. it doesn't feel unhealthy for me, and, and again, this you never we'll get into this more, and this is a point I think we're going to revisit more and more. Watson is also a point. Like you look at how the Holmes and Watson interplay, but you also have to look at Watson in like the the BBC Sherlock. It's you basically get the impression that he keeps Watson around to have an audience for somebody to be impressed. And like yeah, there there's a whole thing about that's probably like an unhealthy codependence and all that. But like in this one, like Watson is useful. There's medical stuff sometimes that like he knows how to do like surgery because he was a surgeon. Or he's, I mean, he's a doctor. He was a, a war surgeon. So he, like, can dress wounds and stuff. He typically, a, a common refrain is Holmes telling Watson to bring his revolver. Mm-hmm. Like, so Watson's kind of the, not the muscle, but he's kind of the rough em up of the group. While also offering other things to the venture. But typically we just get Watson who's kind of just there to, like, take notes. And as he did in this one arguably, but as we get farther in, Watson is actually like a useful character in the story and not just the audience stand-in. But also, Sherlock clearly values him. He says, like, I'm lost without my Boswell, which is a um, famous biographer. So for reasons that aren't necessarily super clear, Sherlock does really care about Watson being around and values him as a person. And it's all down to the way Jeremy Brett talks and looks at Watson. You don't necessarily know why yet, but you believe that for some reason Sherlock does care. And I think that people have taken the line from this story about how emotion is like the fly and the ointment, the grit and the finely tuned machine to Holmes to just make him like, oh, so he doesn't have any emotions. And like, that's not true. Right. It's emotions that will compromise his like reasoning ability. Like friendship isn't necessarily like that kind of thing. I, mostly it's about how, like, love yeah. in this. And I don't know, but I, I, I think that that line has been kind of twisted into making Sherlock Holmes in more modern times, like, has no emotion. Yeah. And that's not really the case. Because mm-hmm. he is, like, affectionate for Watson and, like, cares about him and tucks him in at night. That's not true. That was a joke. Yeah. That is not canon so far, but I'm only one episode in and I'm, I'm down for a slow burn. Yeah, the fifth season twist. Woof. I won't say anymore. The Adventure of the Red Wedding. 
Um, <laughs> all right, so we move into the middle part of this where Holmes disguises himself as a groom, like a horse brush. Like, I, I, don't, I guess I don't know how to describe groom other than they take care of horses, not like a groom for a wedding. Although, speaking of weddings... Uh, as a groom and makes his way to Bryony Lodge where Iron Adler is living and he stops at the basically like cab station where the horses from that area are brushed down and taken care of and you know is there to get information he sees a man pull up in a carriage at Irene's house jump out uh, rush inside and after a few minutes returns and is whisked away to I think it's St. George's Church and then so- shortly after Irene comes out and does the same thing so Holmes puts in behind them and gets there just in time to be sort of drafted into their impromptu wedding as a witness. A thing that I love was how Sherlock is very confused about all of this. Like, he was planning to just do reconnaissance, not to, like, get involved in people's lives. You can see his brain, like, the gear is spinning, trying to figure out, like, what do I do, what do I do? Uh, The king didn't say not to do this. I guess it's okay. Yeah, like, he's at the church, and the husband comes over and is like, You! You! Come here, man! We've only a few minutes left, but it won't be legal. Come, man, come! So he does, and he goes, stand there, hold this. And Holmes is just standing there holding the ring up so you can see it. And the, like just with this blank look on his face, and as he realizes what's happening, his eyes just get like bigger and bigger. And of like, what? <laughs> so here I want to talk briefly, because there's another instance later in the story, but Holmes's disguise effectiveness. Whereas the king's tactic wasn't terribly successful because in the stories Sherlock Holmes is a master of disguise so what did you think of the disguise here I'm not good at faces so I was like a good two minutes of who is this character why do we care who is he like did I stumble onto the wrong thing did I like switch channels somehow I did not understand why we're following this random cab worker and then he comes back to Baker Street and starts taking off the disguise, and I'm, like, gasping. I'm flabbergasted. My jaw hits the floor. I need reconstructed surgery for my teeth. I'm, I'm impressed that, I mean, because you just watched this, like, yesterday. Yeah, I'm very strong. There's so much Novocaine right now. Yeah, I didn't think that this was somebody else. Like, I knew it was Jeremy Brett, but I was just, I was very impressed with it, because, like, there was, it was a very good disguise, I guess. Knowing that it's Jeremy Brett, I could still kind of appreciate, like, wow, this looks like, he looks a lot different. And it looked good. Like, it wasn't just fake teeth and he's wearing a hat there were little bits of like hair that were attached to his face in various places makeup to make his face look very like windburned it's stuff like packed in his cheeks to make him look different like, i don't know it was just very intricately done yeah and we see all of the pieces he's taking off as he's telling the story to watson and it's kind of cool and weirdly intimate to see him like rubbing the makeup off and stuff i'm not sure how to describe it. there's a like you feel like you're being let in on a secret of how this all works and i like that uh, later, he disguises himself as a priest, and we can kind of get to that one when we get to that point. Mm. But it's not as good of a disguise. There's not as many parts to it. Right. But um, Holmes decides that the only way that they're going to be able to do it now is through an elaborate plan that sees him basically in disguise as a priest, hit on the head, trying to protect Irene Adler from some fellows who are trying to earn a copper by opening her door for her. She has him carried into her front room. Watson throws a plumber's bomb, which is a small firework type thing that emits a lot of smoke that plumbers, I guess, would drop down pipes to look for cracks and holes uh, so they can fake fire 
fire. And as Irene Adler believes her house is on fire, she rushes for the pictures that are in a fake alcove by her fireplace, basically. There's a button that she pushes. It seems very elaborate. Mm. And she makes him. He leaves thinking that he has like won the day. And as he returns to Baker Street, a young gentleman passes by and wishes him a good evening. I want to talk very briefly about how terrible Holmes's exit strategy yeah. is here. Yeah. Because he is like laying on the couch and he's all, oh, I'm very faint. Could I have some water, please? Could you open the window, please? All this stuff. And then there's the fire thing. And he's like, fire, fire. He goes, oh, nope, it's a ruse. Like holds it up and like, oh, it's a fake. And then he's like, well, I should probably go. <laughs> we can tell the audience that she is onto him now. And she's trying various, fairly clever means of like getting some telling information out of him. Uh, but he's basically like, no, I'm just going to leave now. Goodbye. <laughs> It's like if you've ever been playing D&D and you're trying to charisma your way through a situation and you keep having really bad rolls and the DM is coming up with answers for everything you're saying and you're just having a bad time. I appreciate that Sherlock was not as slick as he thought he was. It was a good parallel with the king. Yeah, and I think that that is kind of a small bit of the story is all of these these dudes thinking that they're pretty slick shit. All the men folk. Yeah, and then it turns out that they're not quite as slick as they thought they were. Mm. So the next morning, Holmes and Watson and the King arrive at Bryony Lodge to find that Irene Adler has gone. In the alcove by the fireplace, they find a picture of her and a letter addressed to Sherlock Holmes, basically saying that she isn't going to do anything to the King. She's kept the picture as insurance that he doesn't mess with her. So the King offers to pay them basically any sum of money. And the only thing Holmes wants is the picture of Irene Adler. And we come out of the episode with Watson giving kind of just a summary. And that was how a great scandal threatened the kingdom of Bohemia and how the best plans of Mr. Sherlock Holmes were beaten by a woman's wit. He used to sneer much at the cleverness of women, but I have not heard him do it of late. And that summary comes straight from the original story with, you know, minor modifications. This summary at the end was actually the sort of beginning of the story in the book. Yeah, and here it kind of, it works to be the moral of the story, and because we don't know how it's all going to play out, it preserves some of the mystery. But in the original story, it tells us going in, hey, this is how this person beat Sherlock Holmes. And I think that on reflection, I like the having it at the beginning more because you're kind of, you know what to look for, as opposed to having to look back and figure out where this was all going. I think that the, the difference is in the show, they wanted the tension of, like, oh, are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? Yeah. I think having it at the end serves to kind of maintain the surprise at the end mm. when he gets beaten. And then the idea of like, you know what? Maybe we weren't all as awesome, cool as we thought we were. Like having it at the beginning, it's like you kind of ha- in your mind are like, well, I know she beats him. I, 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 that's personal taste, I think. For sure. I think both are fine. They're just doing different things. Um, but let's let's talk about Sherlock Holmes getting beaten in his first episode, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting precedent. This is the first short story proper. Like I said, there was a study in Scarlet and Hound of the Baskervilles before this, but those were novels. Mm. So it's not necessarily his first adventure, but as the as for short stories, it is an interesting interesting place to start. Yeah. You think mystery, you think Sherlock Holmes, you figure there's going to be like a murder or something. And this mm-hmm. is a farce. This is a sex comedy. This is like a comedy of manners where this guy's trying to cover up his indiscretion and Holmes is drawn into the wackiness of it. There are no real stakes here. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's kind of, it's far more tame than I associate with Sherlock things. It's uh, Holmes 2. Was that an Ocean's 8 reference? That was Ocean's 11. 
you, you tried, you tried. So, yeah, I could see, in the stories, I could see the narrative angle of, like, well, I've done two novels where Holmes does his amazing thing. Like, what if I have him get beat? Like, first out of the story, so let's have him lose one. I could see that. But And then probably Granada just was like, well, this is the first story, so let's pick it up as our pilot. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good story, too. Um, I haven't mm-hmm. read any of the others, but, like, just as it's mm-hmm. owner, like, yeah, I can see why you would want to start off with a really good opener. Because you have this really fun drama, you have a good in for Sherlock knowing things, but also you have Irene Adler, who's a really good character, and they mm-hmm. expand on her a lot in this. In the original story, she's kind of, she only has a few lines, she's only seen through Sherlock telling Watson about her. I don't think Watson ever actually meets her. No. I mean, it's when she says good evening at the end. Yeah. But that's about the only encounter they have. Right, whereas here she gets a, a few scenes. We see we see her being good and kind and clever and funny and adventurous. Like, we get flashbacks to her and the king where she's firing guns and riding horses and dressing as a man to go to a strip club. Yeah, like, that's... I don't know, I... I feel like that scene was mostly there to be like, hey guys, we promise that this is like believable, that other people, that this isn't just a dumb trick at the end. Like, she's really good at this. But also, like, she is 100% checking out that dancer. Like, the look on her face, like, she kind of half turns and is like, oh, like, oh, yep, that. And then she just kind of keeps looking at her (laughs) and just kind of smiling. They make Irene a very, like, lively character. I understand why the king would fall in love with this woman because she's so lively and so expressive whereas everybody else is very like, restrained and british mm-hmm. i mean i fell in love with her and this is a tv show from the 80s yeah that tells you how great irene adler is i was falling in love with her and i'm not even into women so there you go yeah. um so we're, we're we're dancing around this topic jackson and it's the question of a scandal in bohemia and that question has a correct answer was sherlock holmes in love with her Interesting. Um, I'm sorry, that's not the correct answer. The answer is no. Okay, so I would argue that I don't think he's in love with her. The question of, like, Sherlock and Irene has been a, like, it's a running thing. Like, the idea of Irene as Sherlock's lover is kind of just whatever it does now. I think in this, he doesn't love her romantically. He, I think he has a lot of feelings about her, like, as kind of, mm-hmm. like, a worthy opponent and someone who's really clever. He's impressed that she outthought him. But I think it's also complicated by him realizing he's the bad guy, realizing he was working for a villainous person who was harassing this woman who was just trying to live her life and mm-hmm. probably has guilt about that. I don't think he loves her. I think he realizes that if things had gone differently, if he'd known her before all this happened outside the context of this, he could have loved her. And he's mm. he's having to process that, which is a lot to process. All the guilt and the realizing you were wrongness of that. I don't know. You, you had me until he could have loved her. Mm. I don't know. I, I'm firmly in the camp of just that it, that is a thing that he doesn't truck with. Like, he, maybe, you know, in, in today's more enlightened times i guess kind of in quotes mm. people might he might be portrayed as aromantic mm. that could be i i just i think that to him it's like the one thing that uh bbc sherlock i think did well was when he's saying this about stuff about like i don't i can't put that in my brain because i have like limited space i can only put in things that are useful and i think that to some extent like love is not a useful like romantic love is not useful 
to Sherlock Holmes personally as a means to manipulate criminals or you know get effort whatever he needs like it's it's a motive that people have mm. it's you know a red line of yarn on a conspiracy board like a motivation that other people have so that's my take I it's a personal interpretation of this if they are in love that has a correct answer and the answer is no they're not <laughs> even if he ever did like love her it wouldn't be romantic I want to like marry her and have two point five children kind of way Mm-hmm. I think it'd be like love the way he loves Dr. Watson as a like a friend and companion and someone he likes to have around, likes to have conversations with, someone who who gets him. Like there's no ring involved here. But she could have been like a friend he could have had and he instead messed that up by underestimating women and trusting shitty menfolk. I did a paper about this story in, in college and there was a thing that I was reading about just kind of the idea that they are the villains of the story. And there's this idea in there that basically the king comes in and says, like, I'm being harassed by this woman and she's the villain and this is what we have to do to stop her. And they just are kind of like, yep, that tracks, let's do it. And frequently people come in to Holmes's rooms and say, you know, like, give their story and they don't have, like, evidence. In the next episode, The Dancing Men, there is, like, an element of, like, the guy has in hand something that, even if he made it up, it's, like, evidence or whatever, it's something other than just this is happening to me, go break into that woman's house. Right. And at the end of the story, they kind of come to realize that, oh no, like, yeah, we definitely just kind of gaslit and harassed this woman for like two days. We also witnessed her wedding. (laughs) Do you suppose that Sherlock used a fake name when he signed the legal document? Oh. As their witness? Um. So would that make their marriage technically invalid? (laughs) I, you know, I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, probably. Like, he probably like had like some like, John Smith, alias, or whatever. I mean, that just came to me. Alice White. I'm sure that was a very good reference it, to something. It was. You, you'd find out. Daniel will love this. Yeah, so, like, I mean, I'm sure that no one will ever know, so it won't really yeah. matter. And, like, they, you know, they went to the continent. It's double not going to get found out about. In the eyes of God, their marriage is valid. But, yeah, their marriage is technically not legit right now. Living in sin. Oh. Sin, sin, sin. I can't believe it. How, uh, how dare these two people in love make, make sex of each other? it's repulsive i had another thing that i noticed this is a little bit more specifically in the story Mm. and it's this idea of simplicity and the story because this takes place after hound of the baskerville where watson actually gets married he is returning to visit holmes not just he's been in the country for a week and holmes makes this deduction about like you've been out in the countryside and you're practicing medicine again and you have a shitty maid and Watson's like, how could you possibly know that? And Holmes says it's simplicity itself, and then outlines this very complex system of deductions. <laughs> and when the prince is there, like I mentioned, he's like, what has she got? The king's like, she has letters. How is she to prove that authenticity? There is the writing. Poo-poo forgery. My private writing paper. Stolen. My own seal. Imitated. My photograph. Bought. These are the simple answers. Like, where's the, give me the interesting part. And I thought, and then also at the end, um, how he tricks Eileen is like, oh, it's, yeah, it's simple. I'll get her to show me. And then it turns out to be a slightly more complex endeavor. I don't know. It was just an interesting repetition of like something that's simple ended up not being that simple or something that was very difficult being having a very simple solution. Yeah. Holmes really likes the idea of everything being kind of simple and easy and unmessy. And I think that's probably part of why he has a lot of thoughts about this experience. There's a lot of moral grayness going on. But like his simple plan for this is uh, 
this whole complicated grift that relies on him being unconscious during part of it. This could have gone wrong so many ways, and in fact it kind of did go wrong for him. And there's no reason it had to be this complicated. He could have just gotten everybody out of the house for like a few hours. He actively chose to make his solution to this problem needlessly complicated because it's more fun that way, because Sherlock Holmes really likes playing the game, and the game is more fun to him when he can add in layers of complexity and new win conditions. I'm not sure if I agree necessarily at that point. I agree that this plan ended up being far more complicated than they actually needed. In later ones, there are more simple plans. I don't like, I agree this one just was kind of very odd. I think Holmes knows that it's in there. Like, he's pretty sure it's in the house and he needs to get to it. And I think that in his mind, he could go in and look for it and he'd probably find it because he's Sherlock Holmes but he could get her to show him. And I think from there then it was like, okay, well, why would she ever let me in her house? Well, maybe if I was like knocked out like, and she felt responsible, so she let me in or whatever, like I was injured. Okay, well, how would I do that? And like, it was just like to him working his way down this list, but the list he worked his way down was like, well, okay, I'd have to be a priest and <laughs> I'd have to get knocked out by some ruffians like right outside her house. So I gotta go hire ruffians and I gotta dress up as a priest. Okay, so how am I gonna fake a fire? Like, oh, I could do this. I don't know. Like, I think it was more of him trying to find the simplest answer, but it involved in going down this list. It involved the, all these parts that just like makes it look like this extravagant show. It is also like if he had searched her house, he there's like a ninety eight percent certainty he'd find it, but the two percent not sure. Whereas with this, he definitely finds a thing this way. So in a way, there's kind of the the simple answer of certainty as opposed to the complicated answer of chance. So sure, yeah. But yeah, he commits a decent number of crimes in this, which leads to that quote where he's like, You don't mind breaking the law? Not in a good cause. Oh, the cause is excellent. Well, then I am your man. Oh, uh, something that I kind of picked up on, a difference between the two, since we are also analyzing, looking at the differences. Mm. The story takes a harder line against Holmes and Watson. For example, in Irene Adler's note at the end, she calls him in the show a formidable adversary or opponent. And in the book, she calls him a formidable antagonist, which is like much harder. And, and Watson in the show at one point, like where he's crouched in her bushes waiting to throw this like plumber's bomb into her house is like, when I think back on it, I feel the most guilty in my life about this. And, and he has like a moment while he's there about actually like looks around and realizes what he's doing. He brought up D&D. There's always a moment where you're in an adventure and you're doing something and just stop and be like, let's look at this. If this were a snapshot with no context, what are we actually doing? And Watson suddenly realizes like, I'm crouched in a woman's bushes about to throw this into her house to fake fire. There's a certain amount of like, once you broke one law, breaking another one feels easier. And so it just kind of compounds mm -hmm. from there. Yeah. And Holmes and Watson, they typically kind of work a little bit outside the law. Nothing like hugely illegal but they have been known to like kind of skirt around the inconvenient little laws. Right. Watson cares about, about right outcomes and Sherlock mm. cares about solving mysteries. And the law of the land is not necessarily important to that because following the laws, you know, matters to them, but, but not as much as like goodness or cleverness, I guess. Yeah. And as we get more in there and there's murders and stuff, it's usually like catching a murderer or proving somebody isn't the murderer. And so saving a person's life or catching killers. And so some of the laws like breaking and entering a place to like look around, whatever, they don't care about those as much. The book seems to definitely be more interested in like being like, this is like kind of crap, gang. Yeah. 
and I understand the show taking, I mean, it's the pilot of a TV show that you want people to watch. You're not going to just like dunk on your heroes the whole time. Right. There's not as much interiority because it's a TV show. I think it still does a pretty good job of that. Like it still is relatively obvious what's happening by the end. Um, mm-hmm. But especially that like bit of shade that gets thrown. But... <sighs> I love that shade. Uh, what a queen she would have made. Is it not a pity she was not on my level? From what I have seen of the lady, yes, indeed, she is on a very different level to your majesty. Uh, I have a repeated note of blanket trust or loyalty mm. that Watson and Holmes have in the king and then Watson to Holmes because in the story at one point, he says that I'm, I know my friend and his methods and I've seen him do this enough times. I have no doubt that we will get these pictures. Mm. Not getting them wasn't even in his mind. It was just like, we're going to get them. And then they didn't. It's like that episode of Doctor Who with Matt Smith where they lose somebody and it's the first time Amy... She's like, you always save everybody. Mm, yeah. Save him. You save everyone. You always do. That's what you do. Always. It's like it didn't even occur to her that sometimes he doesn't save everybody. That frequently he can't save everybody. Because of just, you know, cultural drift, Sherlock Holmes kind of tends towards this infallible ubermensch. And... It's good when he occasionally gets shown up as being flawed, of having gaps in his knowledge, of having mistakes like this, of like underestimating women, and showing him starting at a failure point so he can kind of get better over time is a really good idea. And I look forward to their further explorations of feminism as the stories and show goes on. Yeah. Well, because that's a thing. Oh, that's definitely oh, a good. big theme oh, good. in the stories as you continue the exploration of feminism. Oh, good. I'm very excited about that. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for us, I think, for this inaugural episode. We don't have a fun, fun, fancy sign-off just yet. Jackson, do you have anything that you'd like to plug for the people? Uh, yeah, I also run, run another podcast. I'm half of Gratuitous Pausing. We are a movie podcast, and we're currently going through to compare Disney movies. How about you, Mike? What do you got to plug? I am also co-host of a different podcast called The Equalizers. Uh, me and my friend Madison Jones take films that never got a sequel or prequel, either because they were too good uh, solo movies or because they were very bad solo movies and didn't deserve a sequel. And we give them sequels. Uh, to date, we've done uh, such movies as Hook, Space Jam, Meet Dave, uh, Dog Soldiers featuring, featuring Jackson Eflin. Uh, we've done... Super Mario Brothers movie, we've done the Emoji movie, and we've done Christian Mingle the movie. Yeah, the Christian Mingle episode is a real trip. Jackson's saying that because as of recording, we haven't released it yet. <laughs> They're not wrong. I would watch it. Let's. I'll be honest with you. I watched. I watched the Christian Mingle movie twice, which is three too many times. <laughs> I watched it basically on a bet. We'll say sure. And then I watched it for the episode that we recorded and I would definitely watch the sequel a few times. It's we, we did a, we did a good one, I think. So uh, you can find us anywhere podcasts are found and on social media at the equalizers and we spell it E Q U E L I Z E R S like in sequel. Thanks for joining us this week for our let's watch of scandal in Bohemia. And next week it's the adventure of the dancing men. Excellent. I'm very excited. I this is one of my favorite episodes. I enjoy the story as well, but it's just a, it's it's a good one. So I look forward to your thoughts next week, Jackson. Cool.